What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Caitlin Aber, and we're back. Yep, two weeks in a row, even in the off-season, with another special mini-sode. This week, it's an interview between Bustle's books editor, Christina Ariola and Alice Boleyn, the author of Dead Girls. Since this book of essays was released earlier this summer, it's proven to be a major hit. It was even included in Emma Roberts' Bellatrice Book Club. Whether you're a true crime fanatic or you're just tired of the narrative of the beautiful murdered woman who can't tell her own story, you're going to love this interview. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alice. Thank Um, you. I read your book, Dead Girls, a couple months ago. I remember at the time I was like underlining everything and posting it to Instagram. (laughs) I think that's when we became Instagram friends. And like everybody that follows me was like, this book sounds so fascinating. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by dead girls and why you wrote this book about them? Sure. So like maybe kind of pretentiously throughout the book, if when I say dead girls, I put it, I capitalize it because I'm not just talking about any girl who is dead. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking especially about sort of these iconic dead girls in popular culture, like Laura Palmer is sort of our kind of epic example. But also you could think of examples in true crime like Jean Benet Ramsey or examples from movies or books, The Black Dahlia, whatever, these kind of iconic, um, especially murder victims. Um, and quite often they're sort of these beautiful white girls or women who their body becomes really rife with kind of like symbolic weight or something. Their body is sort of more of a symbol than, you know, a human body. To me, that really reminds me of a book that you actually mentioned, Gone Girl, Mm -hmm. where she kind of like capitalizes the idea of the cool girl, which is almost sort of like a variation or subversion of the dead girl. Yeah. I mean, I think I love Gone Girl. And I think it is also, even though it's a novel, it's very interested in sort of these female archetypes and different kinds of, you know, girls. Uh, And she even, Amy says, everyone loves the dead girl. You know, she is very aware of these different kinds of girls that we see represented in our culture. So when you started writing this, um, what was your idea for this book? Was there a particular show or book or podcast that you listened to that inspired it? Or was it sort of just like the culture of dead girls? <laughs> I, f- I mean, the book really started with writing about True Detective and Twin Peaks and that essay that I initially wrote, which is the first essay in the book. But the evolution of it has been really intuitive. I mean, I really didn't ever have a plan or know what the book was going to be until I was actually really far along in the process. I knew I was writing about detective stories and true crime and how those stories played into my own life um, and kind of how they had affected me growing up or becoming a woman. And then kind of much later, I was like, oh, this all fits together. It all has really similar themes and preoccupations. I'm sort of notoriously bad about anything pop culture other than books. Um, So a lot of it, like I've never seen Twin Peaks. I've never seen True Detective. But I did find those essays to be really fascinating. And I actually reread that one yesterday. And one of the things that really struck me was this line, 
All dead girl shows begin with the discovery of the murdered body of a young woman. As such, the dead girl is not a character in the show, but rather the memory of her is. And then later you add, there can be no redemption for the dead girl, but it is available to the person who is solving her murder. I think that this is obviously a really resonant idea in general, but it seems particularly resonant now in the era of Me Too. And I kind of kept thinking back to this tweet that Carmen Maria Machado posted right after people started coming out accusing Junio Tias of sexual harassment. And it was something along the lines of, today let's meditate on how often we accept women as collateral damage in men's self-discovery process. Right. And so, I mean, I imagine that you finished this book really before Me Too kind of got into full swing last year. But did that kind of add a layer to it that can really push the conversation forward in a meaningful way? Absolutely. I mean, I think the funny thing is that when I sold the book, people said, oh, this is so timely. And of course, it's, you know, two years later now, and people are still saying, oh, this is so timely. I think it's something that's kind of a perennial issue or something that is perennially talked about. Who gets to narrate their own stories, whether we believe women uh, about misogyny and harassment. But I do think we are coming into this really interesting reckoning where people are very specifically talking about women's stories about believing women and about how we can do that in an ethical way, what kind of redemption is allowed for men who have behaved badly. Um, And I think, yeah, it has everything to do with that kind of figure of this man who's like troubled, but uh, and maybe has mistreated women, but we still feel a lot of you know, we still are really engrossed by that kind of character. We're still captivated by him, like by, you know, Philip Marlowe in the Raymond Chandler novels or something like that. We love an anti-hero. And of course, that translates into real life where we love damaged men um, and damaged women we really don't love as much. Yeah, it almost like harkens back to, I think, the arguments that people have been having for years about The Bachelor. And it's like one of these things where it's like, can you enjoy it and also acknowledge how problematic it is and sort of perpetuating these notions about femininity and masculinity that are really harmful? Well, and there is something to it, too, where The Bachelor, it kind of makes a grotesque of these stereotypes of heterosexual love or what the dating process is like, it's obviously over the top and campy and silly. And so I think that's one reason a lot of women enjoy it, because it's like, well, of course, this is nothing like what dating is like. This is some bizarre fantasy that really reveals a lot about kind of what our culture thinks about men and women. And I think there's a level where stuff like true crime does the same thing. It kind of like amplifies like in Dateline or whatever, You know, Keith Morrison's like, they had the perfect family. They had a happy home. It plays on our ideals of, you know, middle class, suburban bliss and about the ways that those can be subverted or revealed to actually be corrupt. So I think that that enjoyment, it's really similar, that people like seeing those things corrupted or over the top, like blown up as grotesques. And I think it's interesting to think about the fact that it really is women who really love it. And I know that, like, here at the office, we joke about, like, murder books. And mm-hmm. so, like, everyone is always asking me, like, what's the, like, next murder book I need to be reading? And, like, I mean, the murdered person is almost never a guy. Right. It's always a woman. And yet we just, like, eat it up. I mean, people talk about how people, how women like to read books about murdered women more than they like to read books about murdered men, uh, oddly enough. And I think... It does have to do with sort of with the fact that so many women can identify with 
victims of violence or with situations that are unhealthy or scary, even if on the outside they appear to be normal and, you know, perfect. So I think some of it is allowing women to sort of work through these feelings of fear or feelings of shame about violence that they have experienced or have been threatened with in their own lives. And I do think that not all dead girls are created equal. Um, and I think that you definitely address that. And I know that there is something that we need that needs to be said about the male gaze versus the female gaze when it comes to who is creating these stories. And I, I do think you make that point pretty clear when you're talking about like Twin Peaks versus like Veronica Mars. Yeah. And I think you're totally right that they're not all created equal, where to me, True Detective, where all of the victims are the are in general anonymous sex workers and we really never get to know them at all. That to me would be the worst kind of example of a dead girl show that does very little to redeem its victims or to question the tropes of its genre, where I think Twin Peaks does some, certainly, because Laura Palmer is an interesting and kind of alluring character, but she still is a bit one-dimensional or a bit of a cipher. She's very mysterious. And I think Veronica Mars does goes a little bit further. I mean, I'm a huge Veronica Mars fan, but um, I think Lily Kane as a dead girl She has some of those same markers, like she is a little bit wild, she's a little bit mysterious, she has secrets, but she still is, she's really loved by Veronica, and Veronica really wants to solve her murder out of this real sense of loyalty and love, and I think that that goes a long way to redeeming her character um, and treating her with compassion. So for you, I mean, in your research and, you know, watching TV shows and reading (laughs) books for this book, what were some of the most thoughtful portrayals of dead girls that you encountered? Hmm. I mean, I... Or is it it a trope that can be thoughtful? Is it maybe something that, like, we just have to, like, completely turn on its head? It's such a hard thing to answer because, in general, I try to kind of say... I try to sort of not be on the side of like, how can we redeem or subvert the genre? Because I feel like our culture proliferates with these stories. There's no one who needs to be told it's okay to tell a dead girl story. They tell them all the time where I feel like sometimes somebody needs to be told it's okay to tell a story about a living woman or a story that isn't so about, you know, a life that maybe is complex, but a woman who survives instead of just repeating these same stories again and again. But Emma Copley Eisenberg, she wrote a really interesting piece for the Paris Review that went up yesterday that it had to do with my book, but also with her own book, because she's writing a kind of a literary true crime book about a murder that took place in Virginia in the 70s or 80s. And she was thinking about whether you should write a dead girl story or when you should write a dead girl story. And she was saying that what is in the best dead girl stories, you feel empathy both for the girl and maybe for other, you know, characters involved or for people who are kind of pushed aside by this obsession with the dead girl or by, you know, people who are accused of her murder or something like that, that the best dead girl stories kind of interrogate the ways that that white women can both sort of be victims and oppressors. Because in her book, two white women were murdered and then men were, these three men were accused of their murder incorrectly. So it sort of is about the complicated way that the dead girl body also wreaked havoc on other lives. Yeah, I mean, the white white women's bodies have been used as weapons as well for since 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. look at Emmett Till, you know, yeah. I mean, that it's not unrelated at all. I mean, the ways that we, that image of the perfect victim, then you have someone who, you know, has done something to her. Of course, we have also an image of a perfect criminal. And usually that's someone who is not privileged, who is not white. You know, those are two sides of the same coin. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, and one of the things that I really like about your book is it's separated into four sections. And then the third section, I believe, is called Weird Sisters. Yeah. And that sort of is more focused on, like, female friendship. Um, and there's an essay in there about teen witches right. that I really find interesting and kind of fleshes out this idea of our obsession with witchcraft as kind of a like a pushback against the dead girls trope. Yeah. So can you elaborate a little bit on that for people who haven't read the book? Sort of like a competing <laughs> archetype or something like that. I mean... I think a lot about, in that section, I think a lot about these pairs of sisters, like in the werewolf movie Ginger Snaps or in um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, who have this kind of deep and maybe codependent bond um, and who use magic and witchcraft as a way to kind of stay alive and kind of an amoral way to do it. They might, like in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the sisters, especially the young witch Mary Cat is not, you know, a good person. She's very amoral and she commits horrible and bizarre acts of violence. Um, But we also see that her use of sort of the witchy side of things is a kind of protection. She knows she doesn't really belong in the broader world. So she surrounds herself with ways or she's really focused on ways to protect her house, to protect her sister who she loves um, and to have this life that can be isolated from the rest of the world. And I think I, I think witchiness has so much to do with that. I think there I, I point out in the book that all of these symbols of witchcraft, like a broomstick or a cauldron, those things are just, you know, random household items really from you know long ago and also now so though that kind of feminine domain of the the home or the hearth has everything to do with with witchcraft and witchcraft to me also is so much about empowerment and about sort of like power for its own sake and i feel like the dead girls trope is exactly the opposite it's yeah. completely disempowering of you know all of women's powers yeah absolutely i mean yeah it's literally, you know, removing power from a female body. And witchcraft 
is about kind of a way to transform your world, too. I mean, I don't believe in magic, but I can see the ways that doing a spell or an incantation or thinking about sacred objects uh, or special colors or something like that is a way to transform the everyday world and, and convince yourself that you have maybe more power than you do. So kind of gives women this privileged position, at least within the sphere that they can control. You know, I mean, the world is sort of in a place where it doesn't feel like women's rights are secured even in the United States. I mean, I enjoy true crime, even when I can see that it is not written in a way that is, you know, humane or that is, I can see that it's written in a way that's exploitative of women. I also enjoy a good murder book on occasion. Is this one of those things that you think that, you know, we do maybe need to be more mindful of our consumption of these TV shows and podcasts and books because of the politics of where we're at now? It's interesting because I I mean, I agree with you that after Trump was elected, they're kind of definitely it became much harder to enjoy something ironically or to think, oh, they're just kidding or something like that, even to the extent that like listening to country radio is harder for me now. And that's not as an indictment of anyone who's on country radio necessarily, but just anything that kind of purports to carry forward, you know, traditional conservative, heteronormative, you know, white supremacist values is not really something that you can, you know, endorse in a time that is so incredibly volatile and where the stakes are so high. So I think with true crime, of course, you have some of that, too, where maybe we sh- we do need to be thinking about what we are actually endorsing in a political way, even if we kind of enjoy something in a knowing way. But at the same time, I think that, you know, a lot of it is sort of weirdly escapist or it's a way of of working through feelings of fear about violence. I mean, we are threatened with violence every day. There's, you know, a new mass shooting every month um, and they only get worse and worse. And so I think that's absolutely connected with this rise of interest in true crime. It feels like this is such a violent society and such a violent world and there's really nothing we can do about it. So consuming those stories is a way to acknowledge that violence and to think about it in a way that feels a little bit safe for us. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that maybe it is more just a matter of being more nuanced in your consumption and conversations that are ensuing because of your consumption. While you were talking about that, I remembered back to a dinner that I attended in maybe 2016. I think it was when Trump was running for for president but had not been elected. And they were honoring Suzanne Collins, who's the author of The Hunger Games. And in his introduction remarks, her editor, David Levithan, who's also an author, said, you know, this book received a lot of criticism because it's about kids basically going to war. And he was like, kids dying in books is not a problem. Kids dying in real life is a problem. And sometimes you need books to point that out. And so I do think that to a certain extent, this argument about, you know, women dying in books Well, yeah, it isn't necessarily a problem that they're dying in books. It's a problem that they're dying in real life. Right. And because they're dying in books, we're talking about it here. And I do think there's a level where our obsession with it or our interest in it reflects the violence of society at large. So probably the thing to be working on is not 
stop everyone from writing murder books. It's, you know, pass some gun control laws or uh, give people a living wage. You know, it's about making a more humane and compassionate society. Then people will be less sort of pathologically, you know, drawn to horrible, grisly stories, is is my opinion. And I also think that there are so many women who are pushing true crime and thrillers in a direction that is very interesting. I think, you know, Megan Abbott has done such phenomenal work. I'll be gone in the dark. I mean, Michelle McNamara, sadly, is not here to write anymore. But I thought that was one of the most brilliant true crime books I'd ever read and just so humanizing and so focused on the victims. Do you still consume dead girls media? I know that you have said that you don't want to write about it anymore. You've said (laughs) your piece. But is this something that, you know, you're still watching and reading and listening to and thinking about? Really? Rarely. Uh like I can't I thought I one thing I loved was Big Little Lies, which is like a dead man show. Actually very like it really flips the script. Um but and even Killing Eve, I think, is also sort of another version of a dead man show. I still like, you know, thrillers and things like that, but since I wrote my book, I have a much harder time watching forensic files or anything like that. I, yeah, it's much less than I used to. I'm much more trying to focus on yeah, the stories of living women than dead women. So what is up next for you? Are you writing anything else right now? Well, I wish that I were writing more, but I'm really interested in influencers and social media and also how that connects with magazine work as this sort of like dream job for women. I think they have a lot of overlaps and similarities in the ways that you kind of have to construct your lifestyle and kind of sell it to a reader. I hope to write more in that vein. There's other stuff I want to write about when it comes to social media and magazines and also sort of the early internet and when I was coming up like in the late 90s and early 2000s and kind of the girl internet. Awesome. I feel like there definitely is a lot of overlap there that's probably going to (laughs) become apparent once you start writing it out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Alice. This is a wonderful conversation and it's a wonderful, really thought-provoking book. Thank you so much. This is such an honor. Many thanks to Alice Boleyn, Christina Ariola, and Eliza Rosenberry at HarperCollins for making this interview happen. That's it for our special episodes, we think. We're going to get back to working on season three. Be sure to let us know if there's something you want to hear from us. But if you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review on iTunes, email us at bustlehuddle at bustle.com, or tweet us with the hashtag bustlehuddle. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Julia Shu, Michaela Heck, and Anna Parsons. I'm your host, Caitlin Aber, and I'll see you soon. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.